As was mentioned earlier, we are certainly delighted that God has blessed us with the ability today to arrive and to be present for these services, to magnify and exalt His name, which is the singular desire of our heart. And we're so thankful that we each are well enough to do this. In addition, as was mentioned earlier, a number on our sick list, we continue to be mindful of them, hopeful that things for them in a health way will be better, certainly in the very, very near future. I'd also like to take a brief moment and express uh, thankfulness on the part of the congregation to Jonathan and the deacons and all who had a part to play in bringing to reality the new presentation system that we have available today. It is, uh, I think, a system that will be much beneficial for our congregation. Very, very thankful indeed for it, for the support of the eldership and bringing that to a reality. In fact, as we give thought to the lesson, you can see it on the wall to my left. Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones will be the title of the lesson this morning. Adam just read for us a moment ago from the first 14 verses of Ezekiel chapter 37. As you give thought to some of what's found in those verses, here are some introductory thoughts about the power and the nature of what shall come before us this very day. The book of Ezekiel and these dry bones bring us to see this book in which that interesting record is found. Ezekiel is one of the five books of major prophecy in the Old Testament. It is in fact a rather noteworthy book in the sense that its time and its placement was so moving and so beneficial for the people of that day. Admittedly, there are those who consider the book a very challenging book. The book, in fact, a very difficult one to appreciate and understand. But it does seem that the major lessons in it and the overwhelming theme fit perfectly into the nature of the history. And for that reason, we'll spend the first few moments, and it'll only be a few moments, looking at the historical setting because that's where we find the basic meaning in these dry bones. It is after we've done that that we then shall close our lesson by appreciating some lessons that can be helpful to you and me as we strive to live daily using the dry bones and what took place then as a guide for us. I perhaps would be remiss at this point not to highlight. I suspect that this is by far the most well-known section in the entirety of the book of Ezekiel. Almost anyone who knows anything at all about the book will recollect the dry bones of Ezekiel. In fact, there were songs back in the 60s and 70s that highlighted the dry bones of Ezekiel. Today, our interest is not nearly what was in those songs, quite frankly, but our interest is what lessons were there for Israel and what lessons might there be for us. With those dry bones at least introduced that way, let us then see what it is that shall become in our wait next. You'll notice on this slide the history of the book again in brevity might be highlighted like this. God's people, the children of Israel, found themselves in Babylonian captivity by the time of the book of Ezekiel. To sketch that in briefness perhaps would bring us to this point. God's people had disobeyed Him. They had behaved in a way that brought the wrath of God upon them as a punishment for their sins. And as such, we notice that these people were taken into captivity. The Babylonian regime in all of its cruelty and in all of its power came ravaging over Jerusalem and Judah and took this people captive. All of that happened over a period of a little over a decade. As all of that happened, it brings us to the observations you find near the beginning and middle part of that slide. Isn't it interesting though that just as surely as those prophets had told that in fact the captivity was coming just as surely as the prophets warned them. 
that for their sin, off into captivity, they would go. Nonetheless, there was this strain of hope. There was a very clear message of hopefulness found in the words of the prophets. You'll notice that, for instance, in these three texts I've quickly asked you to notice, in Isaiah 48, as well as Jeremiah 29, as well as Ezekiel 36, there was a very clear prophecy that the captivity would not be permanent. Although you'll spend some time in captivity and although things for there may be harsh and difficult, I will nonetheless bless you with a return. You will again be able to inhabit Jerusalem. You will again be able to reinstitute the worship that you have so longed for. And you will be able again to occupy that place, that is, that land of, of promise. Those prophecies will be a strong part of our discussion this morning. This hope that God held out for them. It is with that in mind, as you can see next, that brings us to the book of Ezekiel. The people of God had been taken captive. They, at the time Ezekiel wrote this book, were under their overlords, the Babylonians. And in the opening chapter we learn that Ezekiel labored right amongst them. He labored with them as they were dwelling by the river Kibar. And as he dwelt among them in that way, we find his messages were so very powerful. Ezekiel wasn't removed from them by time or distance. Right in their midst, he set forth the word of God needfully to them and urged them to repent and urged them to respond. For that reason, Ezekiel's a powerful book. And Ezekiel was a powerful man. And as he labored amongst them, quite often his lessons were not all that well received. But in the final analysis, he held out for them the only hope that they ever had. It might well be in light of that hope, let's turn to then the, vow, the vision that is found in chapter 37, this valley of dry bones. Adam just read that a few moments ago before us, and so I'll not read that entirety again. But you remember what it was that took place. In the opening three verses, we find the God of heaven that in fact took Ezekiel in spirit off to a valley. And he showed him, putting him down that location and asked him, Son of man, what do you see? Ezekiel, in fact, responded, Bones. This valley is full of dry bones. Later, of course, the comment was made that our hope is lost, our bones are dry. You'll notice, though, that God speaks next. In verses 2 and 3, the powerful observation is made. God said, Son of man, can these bones live? Imagine that question. You and I, as we perhaps would be faced with a question of that form, wouldn't the answer almost be obvious? Wouldn't the answer virtually be evident? You and I, in passing by a cemetery or other placement in which these bones are, and you and I be asked, can these bones live? Notice the wisdom in Ezekiel's answer. In verse number 3, he simply says, O Lord God, Thou knowest. Following that point, we notice the following scene of events. As it was read for us a moment ago, God then told Ezekiel, prophesy unto these bones. Preach to them. Speak to them. I suspect one of the most unusual audiences ever to be had by any preacher. In the Spirit, as Ezekiel preached and prophesied to these bones, there they were, dry, lifeless, but we notice that as things proceeded forward, God held out a promise. 
I would ask you to note the language of the promise. Verse 5, Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter in, into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. And immediately we notice that not only was this prophecy of Ezekiel set forward, but God in the midst of it also made a promise. I will cause life to be again descriptive of you. And I will cause breath and send you to again be with you. You'll notice as that verse number 6 closes, Ezekiel had the confidence and the assurance to do what God said. I suppose you and I would have thought it's useless to preach to dry bones. It seems pointless to preach to bones that here have already passed asunder. But yet, verse number 7 says, So I prophesied as I was commanded. So Ezekiel began to preach to these bones. He began to speak forth to them the power and majesty of the Word of God. And as he did so, something remarkable took place. Verse 7 goes on to say, there was a noise. It goes on furthermore to say, and behold, a shaking. I think Adam made use of the fact rattling in the translation he read to us. Ezekiel began to hear something. These bones began to move and they began to rejoin themselves one to another. And as the moments passed by, it says in verse number 8, Lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them and the skin covered them. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see this? These bones coming back together, attaching properly in their locations, attaching in the right way to form again a skeleton that might be recognized. But not only that, we notice that sinew began to attach as well, the muscular overcovering in the skin. These now were looking very much like humans again, in complete fullness. As that scene unfolded before Ezekiel, one more thing was lacking. At this point, they were just corpses basically standing up. They were simply located in place, but now one more thing lacking. There was no breath in them. They still were not alive, you see. God overlooked nothing, did He? We notice one final thing. Verse number 9, Prophesy unto the wind, God said to Ezekiel. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived. And these, which of course had been lying down, if you please, before, now they stood up, breath was in them. What an amazing thing had just unfolded before the very eyes in this vision of Ezekiel. As you and I reflect upon all of that, what does it mean for us? And what did it mean for them? It would be well at this point to observe that there have been through the ages a number of questions. What did this mean? Was it a prophecy of a rapture? Was this a statement that is supposed to be descriptive of that which will occur at the end of time when in fact supposedly in a secret way the Lord will return and rapture away those that are His own? Is that the meaning? It was not. This is one of those cases when how blessed we are to appreciate that when in the course of events 
The God of heaven reveals the meaning and reveals the interpretation of what may appear to be a troubling text. That settles all of the difficulties relative to it, doesn't it? And in this case, beginning in verse number 11, God explains to Ezekiel what this meant. You'll note the wording with me. Then he said unto me, that's God, they're in the form of that angel speaking to Ezekiel. And it said, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Verse 11, Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Immediately, we then are told what these bones represent. It's not that they represent the events at the end of time. It's not that they represent other matters that may be troubling or problematic in the interpretational schemes of the Bible. God said these bones represent the house of Israel. These people, Ezekiel, that right now are in captivity, they appear to be in dire straits to be sure. They have been dragged captive from their homeland. They've been taken away from the precious temple that they adored. They've been drawn away from the very land that was given to them by the promise of God centuries earlier. This people seems so hopeless. This people, Israel, the children of God through the nature of the Old Testament, they appear to be in such hopeless condition. Ezekiel, these bones that you've just seen come back together. These bones that you've now seen like an army standing up and ready to move forward. That's exactly like this people. I'm going to bless them in such a way that they too will regather their strength. They too will be able to occupy again their land. They again will go back to Jerusalem. They will remain perpetually in Babylon. That alone is a hopeful statement, isn't it? Put yourself in the position of the children of Israel, if you would, for just a moment. I stated a moment ago, this people were supposed to be the very blessing of the human family. God had said to Abraham, I'll bless all nations through you. And now they find themselves in captivity. They find themselves so far from the land they loved. They found themselves so removed from what they thought gave the full meaning to their existence. And yet God said, I've got plans for you. As we develop those plans later in the lesson this morning, we'll find that what a powerful statement of hope now was rightfully able to be embodied in these people. May I suggest to you that as you come near the bottom of that slide and appreciate what hopefully the hope that they could appreciate, what principles is there in that for us? Not only as we see the application to them, but again for us as well. Those lessons might be embodied as follows. Let's build on that matter of hope for just a moment. I stated earlier that this people who it seems were hopeless really weren't because God was still in control. This people that one thought was at a hopeless condition really need not consider it so because God had a plan for them. Let's develop that in the following ways. You can see on that slide. The appearance seems so different than reality. Daniel 4.25 still says that there is a God in heaven and He is in control. They needed to never forget that fact. Although it was the fact that they currently were in captivity, God had a plan for them. In Jeremiah 29 verse number 11 the inspired prophet Jeremiah, not many years prior to this, had said, For I know the thoughts that I think concerning you, 
Isn't that interesting? God had thoughts and plans for them and He still expected and knew full well that they would be developed and that they would come to fruition. I wonder as you and I think about that character today, does God have a plan for you and does He have intentions and plans for me? Things that He expects you and me to do to bring about the fullness of His will in our lives and to impact the lives of others in in a positive way? I know the thoughts that I think concerning you. May we never forget that God, of course, knows all things. And He does have a plan for you and He does have a plan for me. And just as surely as those thoughts are before us, doesn't it point out that given those plans, no good cause is hopeless as long as it involves God. There are times that you and I can become individuals of despair, individuals that have become disconcerted, individuals that apparently have lost our hope. But isn't it amazing in the Bible that hope is such a vibrant thing? In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, now there remaineth three, faith, hope, and charity. And although the greatest of these is charity, that still highlights how important and how vibrant and how useful the thought of hope is. The children of Israel needed not lose their hope. Although they were in captivity, there was something better waiting for them. And today, when there are things that appear bleak for us, and when there appears to be challenges and difficulties, may we too not lose hope. But may we understand that one far greater than we is in control of the circumstance. This hope that we see embodied in a passage like that one, emanates even in the language of Paul in Romans 8.31. If God be for us, who can be against us? As Paul wrote and penned that passage in Romans chapter 8, here was a congregation in the heart of the New Testament, the church in Rome. And to that congregation, they too were beset by a number of opposing problems, almost appearing overwhelming at times. They had misgivings and misunderstandings about a number of things, and yet to them Paul said, If God be for us, who can be against us? One of the surest statements in all of the Word of God is the basic truth taught from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22, and that is the absolute sovereignty of the God of heaven. He controls thoroughly all things by the power of His will. For that reason... We can appreciate today that you and I should be individuals of hopefulness, understanding that Christianity is a positive way of life. It doesn't dwell only on the negative. It encourages us to remove the negative, but to fill those spots with that which truly is ultimately positive. Philippians 4.8 still reminds us to think on things that are true and honest and just and lovely and pure and of good report. And if we think on those things, all of which are positive in, in orientation... What a positive and beneficial and blessed life we indeed would be able to live. That hopefulness you see embodied as what was taught in that ancient era highlights that the people of God, though bleak it appeared, really weren't. Today, there are times the church appears weak. There are times the church appears to have its problems, and surely it does. And there are times when things don't look as positive as we might wish. But in the nature of the presentation of the Bible, ought not we still maintain great hopefulness 
that God does work in His people. His church is that one body that was purchased with the blood of Christ, and that body is the one that shall be saved. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. It is amazing, isn't it, that positive slant that was placed on not only the people of that day, but also our own. You'll notice even beyond that, what about that second lesson? Although many things might be concluded about this valley of dry bones, another one that seems evident is this. Here was a group of people, God's people, blessed so much in days gone by, but now they were in captivity. What did they need to do? What did this vision emanate into their mind? The consequence of the sin need not be permanent. Again, think about the nature of, that, of, that, of those sins they had committed. And there had been many. They had been guilty of idolatry. They had been blatantly disobedient. They had not trusted in God. Almost everything that had been given to them in the Ten Commandments, they'd violated it. For that reason, off into captivity they went. They had earned captivity. That's what they'd worked for. And God says, you're going to get what you'd worked for. However, notice it isn't permanent. If you will repent, if you will come back to me, if you will return to your first love, I'll forgive the sin, you'll be able to go home. And that, in fact, is what happened. Ezekiel time and again urged them to turn aside from those sins. And thankfully, they learned their lesson. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, the only real hope then to be seen in the overcoming of that sin was the nature of their turning unto the God of heaven. How sweet it is to notice that what sin produces can be removed by the greatness of the blood of Christ. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. James put it like this in James 1, beginning in verse number 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Sin bringeth forth death. These people were experiencing just how terrible, just how awful the consequence of sin could be. But thankfully, here God said to them, There's coming a time when you'll be able to revisit that land and to dwell therein again. As we develop that more thoroughly at the top of this slide, think about Christianity with me. All of us within the sound of my voice today who have been baptized for the remission of sins, think what was the case prior to that baptism. You and I were in sin. You and I were lost and separated from God. You and I were living separate and apart from the blessedness of life available in Christ. But on the day of that baptism, and many of you I'm sure can remember the day you were baptized, what an overwhelming event took place that day. Your sins were washed away. Just as surely as those bones in Ezekiel's vision came back together, just as surely as what was dead was now alive again, so too you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1. But verses 4 and 5 of that James chapter says that God in heaven who is rich in mercy have brought us back to realize this. Ephesians 2 verse 8. The greatness of salvation through the grace of God by faith. Isn't that an overwhelming appreciation? 
just like those bones came back together. Ezekiel heard a rattling. He heard a noise. Finally, there came to be sinew in life again. So too, you and I, dead in sin, were able to be made alive again. That message never becomes old, does it? It never becomes to the point where we can easily pass it by. That lesson is that rich and profound. For that reason, you'll notice also on that slide, doesn't it highlight what God does have in store for you and for me? The Lord Jesus came, John 10 verse 10. Jesus Himself said, I came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. It isn't enough just to survive. God wants you and me to have life and that abundantly. Life filled with hope, life filled with a positive degree, life filled with all the character and richness that Christianity brings. No wonder then this might be a fair time to ask, are you and I living the abundant life? Are we living a life infused with all the power and blessing of the Word of God? If we aren't, whose fault is it? Remember, God said through Ezekiel, the bones are going to come back together. The opportunity is there. If you and I aren't living that abundant life, it's not God's fault. And it's not the fault of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it sure isn't the fault of the Holy Spirit. It's our own fault, isn't it? What about that third lesson, as you also see on that slide? Isn't it fantastic, utterly fantastic, to appreciate this one final lesson? Although many others might be drawn, it seems as if this one is so appropriate. Think again about this as being the people of God. They had gone into captivity. And so at this point, imagine that they could have filled the role of Christians in the sense that they already knew the will of God. They had been circumcised. They had been baptized in the way underneath that old law. But now they were in captivity, found themselves in sin. For all they knew, God hated them now. Didn't care anymore about them. He'd allow them to go into captivity. But this vision illustrated that their thinking was wrong on that point. God had not forsaken them. He had allowed them to endure the consequences of their sin, but in that crucible of punishment, they would be refined and be the kind of people that one day would bring Jesus Christ into the world. God did have a plan for them. But doesn't that paint a picture of how sweet it is to think about the second law of pardon, as we often call it, for Christians? It can also be the case that a Christian, though knowing the sweetness of life at one time, wanders away from it begins to live in infamy, begins to live in disobedience, begins to live apart from the life that once was known, well, just as surely as those bones came back to life, that state of affairs for the Christian need not be permanent. That person can recognize again that just like there was a rattling that was heard by Ezekiel, there can be a proverbial rattling in the spirit and soul of any individual. Today, though you and I may be Christians, if you're wayward, if you have walked away from the faith, if you're no longer living as you should, aren't you missing something? The kind of life you once had, aren't you missing it? These bones testify forevermore that God does have a plan for you and He hasn't forsaken you. But the ball is now in your court. The decision is now yours. Don't remain distant from Him. In Revelation chapter 3, the following imagery is set before us, and it never ceases to be moving. 
It was to the church at Laodicea, but in a way descriptive of all of those congregations that found themselves removed from God. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The Lord stands at the door today of your heart and knocks. And He pleads for you to open that door. If any man will open the door and invite me, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. But you'll notice, He must open the door, meaning you. The Lord knocks. He pleads for entry. He wants you to allow Him entrance into your life. If you one time were faithful, but you no longer are, you have slammed the door in His face, why not open it again? Why not allow Him back into your life so that again, just like those bones came back together and lived, you too could be a powerful force for good, not only in your own life, but even to everyone that knows you, loves you, and is praying for you. It may well be today in light of these dry bones of the days of Ezekiel. This message apparently was exceedingly overwhelming for them. As the book of Ezekiel moves forward from here, it's in fact a three short chapters beginning in chapter 40 that they are given a powerful image about a temple that one day will dwell again in the very midst of their existence, highlighting that God was going to fulfill His promise. God will reinstate you to faithfulness in His church if you have walked away from it. But you need to repent of sins just like they were told to do. You need to confess those things before God. Now we certainly would be quick to say, if you've never been baptized, if you've never been a member of that body of Christ, you need to be added to it. That addition takes place as you believe with all your heart Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, commanded in Romans 10 verses 11 through 15. You must also believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If today we could be of any help to anyone in these two ways, to pray for a strength or encouragement, we'd be more than honored to do it. May we never forget the valley of dry bones. I suspect the children of Israel remembered it for a long, long time. If we could be of help to you, to anyone today, Brother Jonathan has chosen this hymn of encouragement. And in that song, in a moment as we stand and sing it, it is a time that really is a time of encouragement. A congregation of people, not to look down on you, but to celebrate with you if you have need to respond publicly today. If we, in fact, can celebrate in that way, won't you let us know the way we can do it to assist you. And do not delay, but come even now while together we stand and while we sing.